the subject for the evening talk is the process of meditation. <coughs> One of the features of, and perhaps indispensable features of spiritual life is, is meditation and it certainly has long since been regarded in the tradition as a rather vital uh, ingredient in life to insight and understanding. So much so that it has a rather uh, central place and treated and regarded with far more respect and interest than the tradition itself, than the Buddha himself and all that belongs to the, the past. Could the volume be turned down please and and in a way in situations like this that's reflected in the general uh, overview of what is taking place here in so far as the teachings take place in the course of the evening and through the groups and inquiry but tremendous amount of time, care and attention is given to the process of meditation itself. But it is important to understand in the relationship to the totality of the situation that in listening to teachings, whatever form that they may come in during the course of the day, that the teachings do have as a central aim and purpose, uh, immediate insight and immediate understanding and therefore the opportunity is available for the fullness of realization in the process of listening itself. So in that respect, the listening is one of the expressions of the day of meditation. There is at times for some people uh, in the listening, a kind of um, view, an understandable one, that one uh, listens and in listening to the teachings then takes what one listens to, then practices what one listens to and then following from the practice of listening comes the insight and the uh, understanding. And certainly for some people, the process of things, the sequence of things um, may uh, occur that way. That has um, an applicability of course when giving uh, the morning instructions. One listens to the instructions and from the listening hopefully one applies the instructions as a general kind of framework for the meditation itself. But in teachings themselves the actual uh, listening element that all can be seen and discovered there. And if one was to take as a clear example an illustration of this is in fact the ancient texts themselves and particularly uh, what the, uh, the Buddhist uh, texts and the texts from the Upanishads that for the most part what one finds again and again that it is in the listening that uh, the insights and the understanding that enlightened realizations do flower and emerge 
and that there wasn't, in fact, any specific need for a kind of follow-up of confirmation, shall we say, through sitting-walking meditations, through the finding of experiences, and then the insight to confirm it. Therefore, and in other words, the listening itself uh, was the jewel of the meditation uh, itself, and in the process of the listening, all things can be revealed uh, equally and clearly. And I think that pays uh, great uh, respect to the body of uh, teachings. And therefore, in some respect, the very process of the meditations in its silent and still form, which takes place so many hours through the day, contributes to realization, to seeing clearly and deeply into this thing of living, but also, and equally, heightens and deepens the receptivity, so that when one is listening to the teachings, the factors of it, or a point in it, or a general theme in it, is uh, insightful enough in one's life that the benefit of that uh, genuinely has a lifelong influence and therefore is enlightening, liberating, freeing, uh, discovering. And that process and dynamic happens in the listening as much as it can happen in sitting, walking meditation. Similarly, with regard to other periods of the day, the totality of the day where we have the small group meetings and the one-to-one -one, um, meetings. Quite often, whether listening to another person or engaged in dialogue uh, oneself, questions get asked. They get asked from yourselves. They get asked from us uh, towards you. Sometimes the heat of the question, as it were, can uh, fade away. One might in that time give some immediacy of reflection to the question, or uh, it may have some uh, staying power shortly after the question uh, has been asked. Sometimes in the listening, and understandably again, there can be resistance to the question that we hear, there can be a tightening up, there can be denial uh, which is uh, taking place. And then afterwards, in a more relaxed and uh, easier moment in which one isn't being uh, hassled by people like me, that one leaves um, the dungeon of M101 upstairs at the uh, end of Guru Alley, and <laughs> in the period of time shortly uh, afterwards, some natural and spontaneous uh, reflection or same thing as inner inquiry uh, does uh, take place, and again, it can be the catalyst for uh, uh, clarification, for insight, for uh, a wisdom in life. But as I say, some questions are so important and uh, profound and uh, have such significance uh, in life that one can leave the, the room or the hall or the question that's arisen from it within oneself, bec but because the heat has gone from the question that 
pressing issue, that burning issue, the tendency of the mind is very easy to forget or neglect that particular concern or question that one has. So as I say, in the process of meditative life and contemplative uh, existence, some of the questions which come to one, either from within yourself or from outside of yourself, are not um, necessarily to be forgotten or ne neglected, but they can be a very uh, useful and valuable tool for the deepening of insight and the deepening of understanding. And it can be when, when there are issues of life, questioning issues of life, whether personal storyline life or uh, larger life, that question can come, when, at what point do I let go of the question? What point do I let the question uh, go by? And what I mean by that is that there, as I say, can be concerns and issues around the question uh, of life, personal or larger life occurring, but if, and a natural reflection arising from that, but if one finds that the mind starts to kind of recycle that question, it's generating a lot of thinking, 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 one finds one's thought life being tied up in knots around a question or a kind of repetition of things uh, around it, then that uh, non-verbal, uh, non-conceptual, non-reflective meditation really matters uh, a great deal. In other words, in essentially, the capacity to bring the focus of attention right back to the here and now, right back to the breathing, right back to the uh, body awareness, or whatever the primary meditation is in a particular time. So in our, our meditations, there's the general rhythm of the instructions which are being given, but as I say, quite spontaneously, reflections and questions do arise in the course of these uh, situations here, and as they are intended to do, sometimes uh, the question or the inquiry is initially stimulated from outside of oneself, in this case by one of the three of us, and as I say, even though the heat may fade, may not be necessary that one departs from the question that was directed to oneself, so that one may let that question rest rather quietly in the heart, in the mind, to see where it takes one, while engaged in the process of the meditation itself. In the course of experience, meditation experiences, and particularly in the unsatisfactory expressions and forms that uh, take place, these sometimes can have uh, quite some degree of intensity. One may feel at times to be consumed with uh, desire, consumed with uh, lust, consumed with reactivity, consumed with uh, aggression, or whatever it, it might be. And so there's the formation that goes on within oneself. It's 
bearing some kind of fruit in the present and one feels really caught up in stuff. And it might be that with that goes the various interpretations that go with it. Sometimes the interpretations that go with it are from its causes. Very common interpretation. And then we isolate aspects of it. We say where it came from um, my childhood, from abuse, or from parents, or from my upbringing, or environment, or etc., hereditary, etc., etc. And we try to explain or to understand uh, for ourselves what's going on, in particularly with some intensity, from or in relationship to the past. But in a way, and sometimes it's not easy for us to acknowledge this, perhaps the truth of life is such that maybe the past can't flow into the present. That we have a kind of constructed, fixed view of past to present and present to future, and that seems a very orderly and agreeable view that um, other people seem to spend their lives languishing in. And one takes up this view that it's that obvious, it's that simple, it's that straightforward. And so we have this kind of very fixed view of what life uh, is. And upon that model, what life is, that when stuff, which you speak of, is going on, we rather quickly and sometimes desperately want to fix it into a uh, past, present, future view of life. Whether that is the nature of life is subject to uh, uh, severe doubt, we hope. And therefore, there needs to be a certain cautiousness, really, about viewing so strictly and, I may say, so mechanically in that way. And if we have a little bit of space uh, in respect to that, then the views which arise from the intensity of painful emotion and painful thoughts that arise, the views about causes will be naturally rather circumspect. They will carry with it a certain kind of spacious outlook which says, well, that view which I am adhering to in the heat of this uh, difficulty that I am having is a way of looking at it. And it's as though we've rather wisely perhaps withdrawn in a very practical way some of the truth that we've invested into the cause of things as being the truth of what's occurring in the present. It's not quite so self-assured uh, about cause and effect past entering into the present. That it's just the way that we've got used to viewing life. Not much evidence for it, but nevertheless got used to viewing in this rather linear um, past, present, future way. When something is going on, and it's got a certain intensity to it, and sometimes that intensity can show itself in the language of trauma, 
in the language of uh, life crisis, in uh, language of uh, addiction, obsessiveness, abuse, many ways that we will speak of and describe uh, uh, the drama of the moment that's occurring for us. There is, as it were, a natural, I think it's reasonably natural, kind of wish that when we are really caught up and we're really going through something, to, so to speak, want to get to the bottom of it. And part of the reason of wanting to get to the bottom of the uh, issue that's concerning us is because if we get to the bottom of it, it will imply that we've gone beyond it or gone deeper than it, and therefore that issue which is so troubling is uplifted and, uh, as it were, elbowed out of consciousness. That's the, want to get, that's the motive, so to speak, to want to get to the bottom of things. In the heat of something, when it's really embroiled in a drama of one's uh, life, in whatever it, it might be, that thought and that wish may arise, and it may arise with a, quite some degree of strength and determination there. But quite often, as I mentioned, the, the, the heat, the fire of the, of the circumstance, it itself is so consuming, it as it were consumes everything, in a way it burns up in that moment, that possibility of getting to the bottom of things, what really is going on. We tend, to get back to my earlier point, we tend to think to get to the bottom of things is to go to the past. We think that's the way to get to the bottom of it. It may help. Spiritual life says it isn't. You can't get to the bottom of things through reference, through memory. It's not the vehicle to get to the base of life, the truth of things. So while acknowledging in the conventional world, the value of references to past and the relationship, socially agreed relationship only, of past to present and that interfacing. And though it can help for some reflection, analysis, exploration of past to present, getting to the bottom of things is of another dimension altogether. Altogether. Not found with the past. Because past can only be memory and all the vulnerabilities and accuracies and inaccuracies that memory. You, one can't look at the past because there's no past to get to look at. Can't get to it. And once one senses the limitation of all the effort to get to the past, because you can't, because life didn't get stuck there, unlike the rest of us. <laughs> that, that one puts immediate kind of perspective or space around the idea that there is the past to get to. In that, still, some reflection, I say, on the past might help to take some of the heat out, or some of the pressure out to help conventionally understand so-called relationships to past, to present, uh, etc. But again, the same kind of tendency of mind, all too human, that occurs for us, 
is that when the intensity of the situation has exhausted itself temporarily, has burnt itself out, is uh, not arising, in a way, at that point, we want to move on. We're glad, in a way, that that's over. We've gone through hell, we've gone through the, 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 the fire, and one wants to have s and enjoy the relief which comes from it, and so, one of the lovely capacities of human existence is, which is to reflect wisely on our circumstances, we really want to do. When we're in the heat, we want to get to the bottom of things. When the heat's gone off, we kind of lose interest. And we just have the relief that, well, at least I'm not frying like I was this morning. <laughs> So sometimes the bottom of things, getting to it, is rather exclusively and rather narrowly in relationship to the condition that we're in. Are we going to rely on a certain painful or unpleasant or difficult condition to find out what the truth of things really is, which do not lie with the past? In the relationship to life and the movement of life, here and now uh, life, which is the only life really worth talking of, because it's the only one we know, it's in the immediacy of the here and now life. It's not at all unusual, of course, that in the process, in this case in the process of the meditation, situations can be impacting quite significantly upon uh, each other, or upon oneself, which generates out of the mind this uh, difficulty with uh, decision-making. And there's a, a situation where we're in the process of going along from one moment to the next, and then sometimes just as a result of one or two thoughts, or as a stream of thoughts, or as an impulsive movement, or as a, a, a tendency in life to weigh up one thing with something else, or something else, that it produces, in the f field and in the process of meditation, ideas about what I should do or not do, and should I make this decision, or should I make that decision, and the m mind with its capacity to, uh, or with consciousness more precisely, with its capacity to acknowledge and experience more than one thing at a time, that the mind can be moving in all sorts of ways rather simultaneously, can produce this turmoil of making decisions. And we have rather foolishly in our own inner tendency, in terms of this, to imagine that the thought about it, this, that, or the other, is a resolution for decision-making issues. And, and, and there's a kind of blind spot which occurs with us that we think, well, I'll try and, f I'll weigh this up, with that choice, or that decision, or another decision, 
and perhaps out of that, those two or three or more decisions which are possible, then I really come to the answer of what I really need to do. And the blind spot in all, all of this is, one thinks one has a, 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 a choice, and that is a, a great leap into ignorance for the beginning, but <laughs> equally Im important is that the weighing up, uh, which is in fact the building up, that in all of that which is taking place, who knows how one comes to the decision which one comes to? Who can explain how anybody ever came to a decision about anything? Anything. And so there's the movement and the accumulating of thoughts kind of piling up like packs of cards. And we're moving around in a kind of circle around the so-called decision-making, as though we think we're in control of, our, of our, the process of what's going on for us in the meditation, when there's been enough investment in each one of them, then that, each, that investment tends to give the idea to the self, this decision which I'm making is really an important decision. One really has a strong feeling and a strong conviction and, the, and that in making this decision it, I'm really at a point in, where, in my life where I've got these very big decisions to make and I'm not quite sure which one to do and that accumulation there is going on inside in the sitting, in the walking, in the standing, in the eating and <laughs> blow me down, it's going on in the sleep as well. And all of this is going on. And sometimes when we reflect back on the very movement of our life, we can't recall when the decision was made. <laughs> and we wonder, what was the relationship <laughs> between all these accumulative thoughts about this, that and the other and the actual outcome, when one can't recall the point where the decision was made. <laughs> and how come, in this process of meditation, one can say, in all the build-up of the thinking and the ideas and the imagination and planning of the decision-making, that one says, with extraordinary conviction, I have made my decision <laughs> and an hour, week or month later it's completely changed. <laughs> Which in a way reflects the inability to have a decision in life. It's a kind of mythological world that we live in that we are really in charge of our life, that we're really in control of our life, and that we really are making independent decisions which are going on. And sometimes we stop and we see, it's just like a, an accumulation of 
thoughts which are occurring and out of that medley of uh, internal events something seems to happen. <laughs> we don't risk the humility of saying well perhaps I'm not in charge of my existence in the way I like to think I am so we said well I made a decision about that. <laughs> So in the meditation process, in the movement of our uh, internal life which is, which is taking place, perhaps there's the potential and the possibility for us, as we say frequently, to have, so to speak, some space around the, the thought uh, life, to see thought life as manifesting appropriately, inappropriately, as it as it might be, the non-attachment, non-identification with all of that, perhaps it can lead to another way of action and being in this world which doesn't hinge on the accumulative nature and factor of thinking, thinking, thinking and thinking. Action in a way comes from another dimension, another order there and the thought may reflect it if it's genuinely connected to the ground of being and if it isn't, that thought will exist not as a manifestation of awareness but it will exist in conflict and in confusion with other thinking because why? We haven't got to the bottom of things. And when we haven't got to the bottom of things our life will be constant situation of shall I or shan't I, should or shouldn't I, shall I do this or shall I do that and, and the mind goes back and forth, one part of me says this, the other part of me says that, all of that movement doesn't say anything except one hasn't reached the bottom of things. And that's essentially, fundamentally what we're here for and that matters, in fact, far more than any single thought you and I have ever had about anything in our life. It matters more than any single thought that you and I have ever had in our life about anything. Therefore, we not too wildly enthused about negative thoughts, but equally not too wildly enthused about positive thoughts. We're treating them with the same kind of dispassionate concern because of something fundamental which makes thoughts arise in the first place, allows them to arise. Sometimes in the uh, process of our uh, um, meditations, sitting, walking, standing, reclining in the process of these meditations. There uh, is uh, a wide and uh, extensive range of experiences which are uh, available. <coughs> and in fact, we are not here in the uh, pursuit of uh, various spiritual uh, experiences and in fact it's also um, not necessary whatsoever to have 
a wide range of religious or spiritual uh, experiences. And as I mentioned at the very beginning of the talk, that it can be that in just listening to one sentence of uh, Dharma uh, teachings, that means teachings concerned with emancipation of the human being, that one can listen to one sentence, realization of uh, truth and liberation is found, as it were, through that one sentence, and a person can say to herself and himself, in all honesty and in all truthfulness, I've um, never had a religious experience, I've never gone deep in my meditation, I've never had the wide range of experiences that other uh, men and uh, women speak about, and I know what a free life is, an enlightened life is, uh, an emancipated life is, and there hasn't been any kind of special experience whatsoever to confirm it. Because all that the person knows is that she or he heard something in that hearing, it was freeing. Just as the very last two sentences of what I said is liberating. One doesn't need the range of, in the meditation processes of the wide range that we hear about of spiritual experiences, let alone the other kinds of experiences, emotional or psychological, for a free and liberated life. It's not the criteria at all. As I say, sometimes in the relationship to um, the field of experiences which are uh, uh, taking place, any experience, gross or subtle as it might be, shallow or deep as it might be, doesn't matter what the experience is, doesn't matter what it is. Any kind of experience which takes place, in this, um, including here in the world of meditation at the moment, does provide in every moment the opportunity for genuine, liberating, releasing insights and understanding. Any experience, and that is the wondrous, if not miraculous, capacity of a human being that everything can be the instrument which liberates and enlightens. The tendency sometimes flies, so to speak, against that. And part of the reason that it flies against that is because we easily, into our field of experience, carry almost virus-like, or impregnate into it, that this is not enough. Jose was speaking of scarcity last night. This is not enough, and one has to go further. One has to go uh, deeper. One needs another kind of experience or range of experiences. And there's a kind of movement in time with experience and with this thread which I just spoke about, which carries through, which inhibits the opportunity to realize what's immediate. One can't see what's happening because the, the thought or the tendency 
has got a conviction to it that this experience, which is ordinary, every day, nothing's happening, nothing's going on, what the hell am I doing here, whatever, <laughs> that that thread and thought has got enough conviction behind it that it says, there's got to be something more, when I have something more, then I'll have some realization, then I'll have some appreciation or whatever, because the tendency invests, in, uh, infects the immediacy of experience and it can't see what's there and it can't see where the liberation is there as well. And this is a common phenomena when we're speaking about deepening our practice or going further or developing our mind or whatever. All of that can be encouraging, of course it can. It can be uh, inspirational, of course it can. It can be uh, endorsing to hear of others ranges of experience. But is it getting used in a way to uh, reject and to deny and to corrupt, in fact, what's happening right here and now because this is where the truth of our life is and if we, the only time and the only moment we've got for a free and liberated life is this moment because there's no other available to anybody. And that hopefully, in the process of things, ought to be, from the teachings, registering well and clear to us, well and clearly enough, so that when that virus of dissatisfaction, as it were, enters into the experience or whatever, and we're trying to get rid of it to get to somewhere else, we're aware of the influence of that and perhaps that's stopping us from the opportunity to really see and understand what's going on with us. In the relationship to the uh, field of uh, experiences, as I say, the vast uh, range and rather wondrous ex spectrum of uh, experiences which are there, which no human being in his or her lifetime can ever possibly hope to touch them uh, in terms of uh, all of them. And we're not here for consciousness to be exposed to the uh, extraordinary range of experiences which are available to a human being, both the joyful and ecstatic and profound and absorbing ones, as well as those which are like a tyranny on our life, which can p seem to persecute our existence. And so since we're not here for, uh, on this earth to try to cover and pass in and through this vast range of experiences there, we're only here to discover and realize what's at the bottom of all of this, so to speak, what's the truth of things, what's to be realized uh, in the present. In some situations in our process, in our meditation process, the experience which is taking place around issues and, and is such that, the, as it were, don't want to sound too technical, but the thingness seems to be the most prevalent. Thingness meaning something which, despite being fluid by character, 
and fluid by appearance and fluid in its uh, in everything that is life it's as though we you and i we have the capacity to forget the fluidity of things the movement the change the process of things and isolate and fix which gives things a certain kind of solidity is the movement and vibration the pulse of life going on unfolding day in day out year in year out in all the multiple ways that it reveals itself to us and yet something in all of that mind labels descriptions views issues participating in all of that and all the dynamic of that in which you and i see our mind moving heart and mind are talking feelings perceptions thoughts changing day in day out moment in moment out with phenomenal variation on countless themes all of that diversity which we see and experience in every virtually every um, meditation ought to be revealing to us as clearly as possible the insubstantiality of everything look how one's perceptions and views about anything and anyone and anywhere and whatever changes phenomenally so our whole of our inner experiences and the range of them keep reminding us of a truth of life of the insubstantiality of everything which we think imagine to be substantial and yet somehow there's some blind spot some ignoring of some not seeing of that mistakes insubstantiality or process or rhythm or vibration or dynamic or flow however you and I might speak of it with substance with substance and this giving substance to generates the suffering generates terrible suffering in life giving of substance to and when we give substance to a situation because it arises or because it stays or because it goes <laughs> that's your range of choices <laughs> we when we give some substance to because it arises or because it stays or because it goes or in some cases because he arises or he stays or he goes <laughs> or she arises or stays or goes or whatever and that can be from birth to life to death it can be from an object which one is given substance to or a person to or one's own very existence that in the movement of the arising or the staying or the going and the giving of substance to all of that expresses the potential for extraordinary degrees of human suffering bound up with it bound up with it 
And sometimes we see too in the rage of the, the heart, the aggression of the heart, the pain, where we look at a situation outside of ourselves. And then there's such uh, anger of the mind, such violence of, of, of the view, that the only way we think we can get rid of it by making something else go. And sometimes in the most violent and dreadful ways. So a relationship to the movement of life which shows itself as a, as I say, the coming, uh, the staying, and the going, the giving of substance to it inhibits and prevents the opportunity and the realization to see this movement is the life unfolding. Can we accommodate this movement, this process, this vibration, this rhythm, this world that shows itself to us? If we can accommodate it, we are enlightened. That is the only enlightenment. And if we can accommodate it, we are immediately liberated. We have understood everything the Buddha has ever said and we, ha and we know exactly what he knew under the Bodhi tree two and a half thousand years ago. We are free. So, this, so the movement to give substance to, arising, staying, or passing, can we, as it were, unpack the movement? Unpack the movement to invest in, to make much of, to reinforce, to substantiate, or whatever. When we don't, we suffer. Because it exerts an interminable and unpleasant and, and uh, utterly unsatisfactory pressure on emotional, conceptual, and physical life. Substance acts as a pressure on existence, and nature has deemed it so that those who live in that pressure will suffer in that pressure. Those who do not understand the way of life will suffer through that not understanding. It's not your choice, it's not my choice, but that's the way the nature has made of this existence. And since it's made of this existence, it, it calls on us in a way, it demands upon us, we look to understand things so we are free and the nature is our, our servant. We walk on the earth in the miracle of life, but we're not daunted by it because we know the way of life is not in substance. There's no substance in life. And that is not a negative or arrogant or dismissive. It's actually a way of seeing and understanding which pays the greatest respect to life. Because you understand life in its movement, in its process, in its unfoldment, in its uh, rhythm. And we are true to it because that is to be with the truth of things. And I don't think these teachings are such that the very character and the feature of the teachings are far removed from what we can see clearly. And as I said earlier, we don't need any kind of special kind of experience to affirm or confirm. It's 
one of those wonderful things of life. To see is to be free. If you see what is said in the teachings, then the seeing is the freeing itself. Immediate, without anything around to confirm at all. And that brings its own uh, quiet uh, uh, joy and uh, delight in life and that eternal satisfaction of being in, in harmony with the rhythm of things. And it's an unshakable one, no matter what. May all beings live with awareness. May all beings live with life. May all beings be free. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.